Um, good morning, one, morning, one and all. Uh, my name is Joel. Uh, I will be the speaker today. So, on behalf of the church, I'd like to welcome all visitors and all members for attending today's uh, Sunday's worship. Um, I'm privileged today to be delivering a sermon from the Word of God, and my topic today assigned to me is provoking one another. So, I think we are on a series of lessons. Um, I think previously we talked about preferring one another, and then I think uh, subsequently we talked about. Um, I think Alvin preached a sermon, but I can't remember the title at this present moment. And then this is the third in this line, so provoking one another. So this idea of provoking one another, on surface, it sounds pretty contrary to what Christianity is all about. So after all, doesn't provoke mean to anger someone, to um, cause another to be annoyed? Indeed, according to the Webster Dictionary, uh, one of the key definitions of provoke means uh, to incite anger, to bring about anger. So I think a lot of us are familiar with provocation. Uh, we see many instances of provocation in our everyday lives. Uh, for those who like to watch sports, who like to watch uh, basketball, for example, some of you may, be, may have heard of trash talk, you know, a practice perhaps more prominent in some of the games that I mentioned earlier. And uh, to trash talk means to say words or to perform actions that are meant to provoke or meant to incite anger in the opposing team or player. For example, for those who maybe watch a bit of NBA, some people would step over opponents as a way to incite anger or to you know, put down the opponents. Or some people will say, um, you're too small or too short to you know, incite anger in the opponent. So trash talk not only aims to mess with the opponent's psyche, but also wants aim to demoralize the opponent and serve to boost one's morale and confidence. Now closer to home for those non-sports fans around us, um, for the drivers around us, um, I'm sure you are familiar with road rage. And I'm not sure if you have seen it, but there was a viral video uh, a while back circulating um, on the internet about a cyclist and a driver and their altercation. So allegedly the driver of the car had driven too close to the cyclist and this caused her to be so furious that at the red light stop subsequently, she chased down the driver and she got into a heated argument with the driver. So this, this uh, argument involved multiple acts of provocation from shouting to flicking her sweat onto the car, I don't know how that achieves anything, um, and eventually ended with the driver riding off with the cyclist on the bonnet of the car. So this was a, um, a big uh, <clears throat> viral video that I watched a while back. And even closer to home, you know, for the parents in our midst, haven't your children provoked you at some point of time? So I, I love my daughter Alyssa very much, but sometimes she likes to do the opposite of what you say just to see your reaction. So for example, I've told her multiple times to use maybe only half a pound of soap uh, for, to wash her hands. But invariably, every time I see her washing her hands, her hands will be filled with soap bubbles after using three or four pumps of soap. And she will be looking at me sheepishly, um, assessing if her deliberate disobedience provoked any reaction in me. So yes, I'm sure all of us here are familiar with this idea, this concept of provocation. But all of us here are probably not big fans of it. It is something negative, something um, uh, derogatory. So why is my lesson today on provoking one another? Why would God or Jesus want us to provoke one another? In fact, in Ephesians 6 verse 4, which reads, And your fathers do not provoke children to wrath, uh, but bring them in the training and the admonition of the Lord. We are specifically told not to provoke our children. Now the truth is, there is actually another meaning to the word provoke. And it means to evoke or to stir up a feeling or an action. 
And this is also the likely meaning Paul intended in his letter to the, he the Hebrews in Hebrews 10.24, which is the, the key verse that we're going to study today. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. In other translations, this means to stir up in the New King James Version or to spur on in the NIV translations. This word provoke here actually originates from the Greek word parosusmon. I can't really pronounce it correctly, which means to bring about, bring upon, or to stimulate. So this begs the question, why, why do we need to be provoked? Why do we need to be stimulated? Why do we need to be provoked? So, brethren, I believe there are three main reasons why Paul exhorted the brethren in his letter in, to the Hebrews um, to provoke one another. The first reason is inertia. Who here is familiar with physics? Sir Isaac Newton is one of the fathers of classical physics and the first law of thermodynamics states that an object at rest will remain at rest unless an external force is applied. Essentially, Newton's first law is about inertia. But the concept of inertia is not limited to classical physics. You also see examples of inertia in our everyday life. For example, at work, when you are assigned a big and large project, the task may seem overwhelming and daunting, and it may be difficult to start work as you know you may be very discouraged at the prospect of the immense work, or simply because you do not know when or where to begin. That is inertia. Another example of inertia is this sermon that you are currently listening to. Although assigned to me a long time ago, between work and family commitments, I struggled to make time to prepare the, 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 the lesson. But the honest truth was that I never got started because I perceived that you know, it would take long hours and a lot of effort required, and that is inertia. We literally see inertia in all aspects of our life. In fact, every morning when I wake up at 5.45am for work, I linger in bed for 5 minutes before accepting the sad truth that I have to go to work to see patients. So human beings are inherently lazy creatures who crave comfort. And hence, we need to be provoked, we need to be stimulated to stir, to stir us up in order to get, for us to get the ball rolling. That is for us to overcome the initial barrier that prevents us from acting. This barrier could be fear, or for example, fear of doing the wrong thing. Or could be, the barrier could be a lack of motivation or lack of belief in its purpose. The barrier could even be just a general sense of lethargy. In, in the medical world, we, we have this term called malaise. Malaise is the term where, you know, when you are sick with fever or just a viral flu, you are very tired, just, you just have no energy to do things. But I think Singlish has a, arguably a better term, and that term is sien. Sometimes we are just very sien and we are, have no energy to do things. So we need to be provoked. So we stop feeling sien. We get courage and motivation to do the tasks we need to do. The next, second reason is to call to action. This much is clear from the verse. To provoke unto love and to good works. But why is provocation necessary to call to action? That's because more often than not, Christians tend to be passive rather than active. What do I mean? So many Christians um, tend, <clears throat> may feel that as long as they go to church on Sunday, they follow God's rules, they read the Bible, their salvation is secure. They are reactive rather than proactive. But we need to realize that our Christian faith is more than our relationship with God, although that is important. It is also about our relationship with others outside the church and those within the church. Turn with me to James 1.27. James 1.27 reads, 
pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. So Christianity is not an introspective religion or religion that's only about theology, about theory, about doctrine. It's a practical, living, outward-looking religion that demands action from the followers and disciples. James 1.22 said, Be doers, but be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For our faith to be practical and to, for it to be a working faith, we need to act on what God has commanded us, i.e. to evangelize, i.e. to do good works and to edify the people around us. We as Christians cannot be simply satisfied with purely maintaining our relationship with God while turning a blind eye to the suffering and the troubles of the brethren or the world around us. For example, what kind of Christians would we be if the Filipino brethren who need help when they have a natural disaster ask us for help, but we just told them we would pray for them but not offer any concrete assistance or any visible help. This would be just like what James said in 2 verse 14 to 17. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked or destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warm and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So it's clear that a living faith is a faith that works and acts. And I believe most of us here believe that to be true as well. However, that this working or this acting faith may not be natural or instinctive to many of us. Hence, we need to be provoked. We need to be jolted from our state of lethargy and inactivity to be called to action, to do God's work, to do God's work, to help others around us. Jesus is one of his final statements on earth. He gave a call to action to all the disciples, present and future. In Matthew 28, 19-20, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the, sorry, of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Have we heeded his call to action? Lastly, the last reason I believe we need to be provoked today is to associate our actions with emotions. Now, what, what do I mean by this? I feel that there were many verbs Paul could have used in the verse. He could have said to have courage, to exhort, to encourage, sorry, to exhort. But I believe Paul chose the word provoking for a reason. In my previous slide, I talked about the various definitions of provoke. And one of the definitions we are familiar with was to incite anger, to get under one's skin. Now, although we have established that the word provoking used in Hebrews 10.24 has a positive connotation and is referring to stimulation or stir up, but I believe inherent in the word provoke is a concept of challenging another to stir up the other party's emotions. Thus, to provoke means to bring about an emotional response. Now, why is it necessary to bring about an emotional response? I feel, or I believe, it is important because emotion often drives action and gives a sense of urgency and ownership. I'll give you two examples. Acts 2, 36-37 is a prime example of this. 
In this, it was Peter giving a uh, preaching to the crowd of 3,000 in the day of Pentecost, and he reads, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard it, they were pricked in their heart, and they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, What shall we do? So in this example, we probably read this verse multiple times, but notice a few key points. The Jews were provoked by Peter by a statement that they were the culprits for Jesus' crucifixion. This prompted them to feel hurt, to feel guilty. And this emotional response led to their immediate question, what shall we do? Notice two key words in this question, what shall we do? There's only four words, so the two words are we and do. So emotion drove them to have a sense of ownership. It's not, he, their question was not about uh, another group of people or a hypothet hypothetical someone. It was about them and what they needed to do. Furthermore, the word do and the immediate nature of their response showed how emotion led to action and a sense of urgency. They wanted to know what course they could do immediately to take, to assuage their guilt, to rectify their mistake. So provocation gives rise to an emotional response which, if applied in a positive sense, could be a powerful driver of change and of action. Another prominent example I have from the Bible is Apostle Paul. In Acts 9, we read of Saul's conversion. I would like us to pay special attention to verses 4 to 6. And he fell to the earth, and he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me do? And the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Saul, as he was known before becoming Apostle Paul, was a prominent opponent of the early church who frequently persecuted Christians. Yet after this encounter with Christ, his life changed completely and took a 180 degree turn, transforming, what, transforming from one of the greatest enemies of the Lord's church to one of, Lord's, one of the Lord's church most zealous and most faithful member. All these born out of the emotional response he had to Jesus' question. Why persecutest thou me? Notice in verse 6, he was trembling and he was astonished. He was in shock. He was fearful. He was guilty. These emotions compelled him similarly to have a prompt, action-centered response that demonstrated a sense of ownership. What will thou have me do? As such, I, I believe we as Christians need to be provoked because the emotional response it produces will be a catalyst for us to improve and a source of motivation to carry out God's work. So when a preacher challenges us individually, for example, have you brought anyone to church um, this past year? Have you been attending Bible classes? Have you done your daily Bible reading? Don't take it in a negative way. Instead of getting offended and getting challenged, let us use that shame, that guilt, that embarrassment to inspire us to change, to adopt good and new habits and weed out undesirable practices in our life. So to summarize this section, I believe the three reasons we need to be provoked or why Paul wanted um, the Hebrew Christians to provoke one another are to overcome inertia, to call to action, 
and to bring about an emotional response. So now that we've understood the need for provocation, let us next talk about the context in which provocation should take place. So to better explain this, let us delve deeper into the verse that we have mentioned earlier in Hebrews 10.24. So far we have focused on the word provoke, but let us look at the first part of the verse and the second part of the verse. So the first part of the verse says, let us consider one another. I think this statement is key to preface the act of provocation. Why do I say so? Because it demonstrates clearly the intent behind the provocation, not for the benefit of the provocator, which is the one provocating, but rather the other party. This is in stark contrast to what we know and have, have come to associate what provocation uh, is we see in our daily life. Provocation, when, when we see in our daily life, is usually done to diminish, to bring down the other party, to incite anger, to gain an advantage for yourself is for the benefit of the one who is provocating. But in this instance, the provocation is for the benefit of the other party, not for yourself. The provocation that God wants us to do is done out of love and, con uh, love and concern for the other party. It's done to edify one another, to build up one another. Hence, our mindset in which we provoke one another is critical. We need to have a selfless mindset, an outward-looking mindset, one that is genuinely concerned about the welfare of others. That is what Paul meant when he asked the Jewish Christians to consider one another. And this brings to mind a verse in Philippians 2 verse 3. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, esteem each esteem another better than themselves. Implicit, <clears throat> implicit in this request to consider one another is the spirit of humility. Everyone is equal in the family of God, and we are all in this Christian race and journey together. No one is superior or inferior to another, regardless of background or qualifications. And it is with this spirit of humility, this selfless mindset, this lowliness of mind, that we provoke one another. Not to antagonize each other, not to give each other more work, so that, you know, I'm better than you or you're better than me, but in the, to help each other grow in the way of the Lord to become better servants in the Lord's vineyard. So now that we understand the, the background, the context in which provocation should occur, which is with the selfless mindset in the consideration of others' welfare, let us next find out what are the actions we are to provoke unto. And the second part of Hebrews 10.24 reads, Provoke unto love and the good works. Unto love. So love is a very broad and non-specific word. What do I mean by this? It, 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 can, it varies from um, love between uh, couples, love within the family, um, love in the church, uh, love for, for, other, for material things. It, it, it's very broad and non-specific. And there are four commonly used Greek words um, to depict love. In, in the English language, we only have a single word, love. But in the Greek language, there's four words that they use to depict love. And the four are eros, uh, storge, philia, and agape. So the first word eros, eros refers to sensual and romantic love. So it's, interestingly, this word is not actually found in the New Testament, but was hinted at in 1 Corinthians 7, if you read. The second word is storge, familiar love, or love for family and relatives. Similarly, this word is also not found in the scriptures, but the opposite form of this word, a storge, was used in two instances 
to mean heartless or devoid of affection. This is seen in 2 Timothy 3 verse 3. The next word, philia. Philia, friendship and brotherly love. And we see that in Romans 12 verse 10. Fun fact, this is also how the city of Philadelphia got their love, the city of brotherly love. And lastly, agape. Agape is perfect and unconditional love. This is the type of love we are most familiar with and the highest form of love as demonstrated by God towards us in John 3.16. This is also the same Greek word used, same Greek word used in this verse, Hebrews 10.24, agapao or agape. Now some commentators postulate why, why did Paul use provoke unto love and good works? This was due to the strife between the brethren in those times that Paul the prophet Paul to write provoke unto love. It was as though Paul saw that they were provoking saw that they were provoking one another in a negative sense. And Paul wanted to ch channel that energy in a positive way, to get them to provoke and to love instead. But regardless of the reason, it seems apt and fitting to me that love is the first word mentioned here. This is because although love may not be considered traditionally a work in the same vein as evangelism, in the same vein as, in the same vein as good works, love is the basis and the bedrock of the Christianity faith. It was God's love for mankind that caused him to send his son to die for our sins. John 3.16 It was Jesus' love for men that allowed him to endure suffering on earth and crucifixion on the cross. It was Paul's love for God and men that motivated him to go on all those missionary journeys to preach the word despite the persecutions and the obstacles he faced. In Mark 12.30-31 Jesus summarized all his teachings into two commandments, and he reads, Mark 12, 30, 31, And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. And this is the first commandment. And the second is like, and namely this, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than this. This was emphasized again in John 15, 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Loving God and loving one another is, is the essence of the Christian faith. This is because if one has agape love for God and man, one will no longer be concerned about one's desire, about, one, about one's welfare, but rather about God's commandments and about the well-being of others. I believe this was Paul's intent and message in this particular verse, that Christians need to be provoked to develop the agape love for God and man, and with that love, the other aspects of Christianity will follow suit. As now we have that selfless attitude towards God and towards men. As we sing the song, none of self and all of thee. That is the, that is the aim that what Paul wanted. That's the, that the aim that Paul probably achieved, and that's the aim that Paul wanted the, the Christians, uh, the Hebrew Christians to achieve as well. The second item that we are to provoke unto is good works. So this is the more tangible or the more visible aspect of the provocation as opposed to love, as this represents the concrete acts of kindness and charity that are performed by Christians. The term good works come from the Greek word ergon kala and simply means deeds that are good. There are several definitions by several commentators, but I believe a simple one that all of us can agree upon would be actions Good works are actions that benefit others in accordance to God's law. So some examples of the, in the Bible of good works include giving to the poor. It's seen in Matthew 19.21 as well as Acts 2. We won't we be reading that. Giving food and drink 
to those hungry and thirsty, as well as visiting the sick, um, as seen in Matthew 25, 34-36, or even something as simple as making clothing for the needy, as the case of Dorcas in Acts 9, 36-40. The list goes on and on, but you get my drift. Significantly, I believe that good works are not something only all Christians should strive towards, but rather it is a commandment from God. It's not something optional. Meaning to say that it's not a good to have optional portion on our resume, Christian resume, but rather a must-have compulsory component. Turn with me to Ephesians 2 verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We are created for the purpose of good works, and it's been ordained by God that we should perform those good works. Similarly, we read in Galatians 6 verse 10, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good to all men, especially unto those who are the household of faith. The book of Titus even goes as far as to say that good works are something to be maintained, to be, to be, up, um, to be done on a regular basis, to be conducted in a consistent manner, as it is profitable for us Christians. Titus 3 verse 8 says, This is a faithful saying, and these things I will doubt, affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto, unto men. As such, given the importance of good works, it is no wonder that Apostle Paul exhorted the Jewish Christians to encourage and stimulate one another to participate in these good works. So to summarize this slide, essentially the context in which we should provoke one another is with the consideration of other people, to have a selfless mindset, to consider others' welfare before your own. And the things that we should provoke towards is to love, because love is a bedrock of the Christian faith, and the love is the agape love towards God and towards men, towards people within and without the church, and towards good works, because good works is mandatory for our Christian faith. Having understood the purpose of provocation and the intended end product of provocation, which is love and good works, let's now see some of the examples of provocation seen in the Bible. The first example we have is derived from 2 Corinthians 9 verse 2, which reads, For I know the forwardness of your mind, for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal have provoked very many. Interestingly, this is the second passage after Hebrews 10.24, in which the same Greek word provoked parasismos was used in a positive light. In this verse, Paul was commending the brethren in Achaia. So just to give some context, Achaia is a place in uh, Corinth, and it's, they're commending them for their zeal and their readiness. Why so? So many commentators infer that he was likely referring to the collection of the saints, uh, for the saints, for the suffering Jewish Christians, as mentioned in 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the church of, church of Galatia, so you must do also, on the first day of the week, let each one of you um, lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. And when I come, whatever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it's fitting, I go also, they will go with me. So Paul was going to... Um, the church, church of Corinthians, uh, church at Corinth, and he wanted them to have some collection for the uh, church for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem because they were undergoing some uh, calamity. 
uh, uh, some, uh, some persecution. So when he went there, he actually got the gift very quickly, so much so that he was impressed with the enthusiasm and the prompt nature of the Corinthian church response. He was so impressed with this response that he boasted of their deeds to the churches of Macedonia, which is mentioned in this verse, 1 Corinthians 9 verse 2. And, this, um, and his boasting of their actions had a positive ripple effect on these congregations that they were provoked by their zeal, meaning to say that they were encouraged and stirred up by the works of the Corinthian church. This example entirely exemplifies Hebrews 10.24. Firstly, the Corinthian church considered the welfare of the Jerusalem brethren and hence they responded swiftly and promptly to address their needs. Next, these actions provoke others in the faith, i.e. the Christians in Philippi, Thessalonica and Berea, which are the Christians in Macedonia, to good works, meaning to say that their actions had a positive effect on others, prompting them to follow suit. In fact, Paul was so proud of them that he said in verse 1, uh, he saw no need to ask them for help this time, as he knew they would do so. So 2 Corinthians 9 verse 1 says, For as touching ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to them. He felt that it was unnecessary for him to even write to them because he knows that they will help regardless. So thus, in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 2, we have a clear example of how our actions or our example can provoke others to love and good works. The second example we have from the scriptures can be found in Romans 11, 11 to 14. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not but through their fall to provoke them to jealousy. Salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for uh, all the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you, Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentile, I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. So this passage also used the English word provoke. But the Greek word is different. The Greek word is parazesloso, and it means to induce jealousy. But I would um, put to you that it has a similar effect as what we mentioned earlier. So in this context, Paul was hoping that his ministry among the Gentiles would inspire the Jewish community and convince some of them to be converted to Christianity. He is inclined to think that the introduction of Christianity to the non-Jews will make the Jews feel jealous and cause them to realize their mistake, their folly, and turn over a new leaf. So Paul's Christian ministry in the gender community was indeed a provocation in a positive sense as it aimed to incite an emotional response among the Jews um, with a call to action prefaced with the consideration of the welfare of his Jewish brethren. Now given the animosity of the Jewish mobs in various cities of Paul's ministry and visits, I'm uncertain how successful his provocation was at really attracting the other Jewish people to Christ but certainly this is another clear example of how our actions can positively influence the lives of others. So now that we have read about how provocation um, uh, or positive provocation is like in the New Testament, we have talked about why provocation is necessary, we have talked about the context in which provocation happens and uh, occurs and the end product of provocation. Let us now look at practical ways we can provoke one another today. But before I share about the practical ways, I believe it is key to summarize today's lesson on Hebrews 10.24 by taking into account Hebrews 10.25. Not forsaking the assembly of our, assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, by exalting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. 
What I want to draw attention to in this verse is the practice of assembling together. The Christian assembly is especially suited as a platform or a vehicle for positive provocation to take place. We are encouraged by the attendance of others. The sermons preached and the lessons shared and taught both admonish and uplift us. The fellowship with brethren edifies and comforts us. Without assembling together, without having fellowship with one another, there's no way or we will not be able to provoke or stir up one another to love and good works. Hence, this further underlines the need for all Christians to be regular in not only their Sunday church attendance, but in all church activities, as only through the assembling of saints and the interaction between them that we are able to encourage one another in the faith. So having, having established the need for assembly, and that being the basis in which we provoke one another, here are three ways I feel that we can provoke one another in love and good works. So they're summarized in the three E's. The first E is example. The first way is by our example. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 4 verse 12. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. We read earlier how the example of the Corinthian church prompted many, stimulated many to follow suit. Similarly, our conduct as Christians have a powerful effect on others around us. The way we talk, the way we act, the way we respond to criticism of problems, all these are visible to the brethren among us and can either encourage or stumble others. By living a life of godliness, you are showing others a pattern of good behaviour that others can emulate. And this need not be anything flashy or grand. In fact, a simple example of the top of my head is how sometimes I see Cornelius coming to Sunday worship despite having to work on the same day. His dedication and commitment to God provoked me to want to do the same. For the various brethren who took time out to clean this church building before the, the, our inaugural worship service in July. Or the brethren who never fail to attend every tracting session. These simple acts may seem insignificant to many, but they go a long way in encouraging and provoking others in the faith. The way you live your life and the way you carry yourself as a Christian will incite others to follow you. You provoke to love and good works by example. The second way we provoke one another, the second E, is encouragement. Encouragement is something we all need as Christians. The Christian race is long and arduous and filled with ups and downs. Inevitably, there will be times where one has fallen short or one is experiencing trials or tribulations. These are times we need support and comfort from our fellow brethren. Through encouragement, you lift others up, you cheer them on. You positively reinforce spiritual growth in other members of the church. Of course, it's easier said than done, but a very simple way all of us can show encouragement or encourage one another is to display gratitude, to show appreciation. And this is what Paul did in many of his epistles. Um, he thanked God for the church's service and example. So turn with me to Romans 1 verse 8, and he reads, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken, to, spoken of throughout the whole world. Can you imagine how encouraging and uplifting for the brethren, um, it must be for the brethren reading those words? I believe these words of appreciation that Paul had for the, for the Roman church went a long way in motivating the various Christian brethren to press on in the faith and to continue the race. So in today's context, we can all take a leaf from Paul's book and show appreciation for acts of service around us. One could thank Auntie Irene later for the delicious food that she cooks every Sunday. 
Or we could thank Brother Alvin for always giving us uh, good lessons and sermons. One could thank um, the social the media team, Sister Rachel, for always ensuring that online worship setup is, um, is done and is present. And the list goes on and on. But I believe all of us get the gist of how we can provoke one another by encouraging one another. Lastly, we provoke one another to love and good works by exhortation. Example, encouragement, and now exhortation. The word exhortation comes from the Greek word paraklesis, which means a calling. Um, in the modern definition, to exhort means to emphatically urge another party or parties to perform a particular action or particular deed. Simply put, it is a call to action. Okay? The difference between encourage and exhort that exhort requires an end product. It requires for you to do something. One example of uh, uh, Paul's various exhortations of the uh, Christian congregations is seen in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 14. So in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 14 reads, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient towards all men. In this example, you clearly see the actions that Paul wants the, the brethren to perform. He's strongly urging them, exhorting them, to warn the unruly, to comfort the feeble, to support the weak, and to be patient. Similarly, today, we need to exhort one another to love and good works. I believe I am now currently exhorting you all to exhort one another to love and good works. But how exactly we exhort? How exactly can we exhort one another practically? Do we just go around and say to members, "You go and preach the word. You go and visit the sick." No, I believe that's where the context of considering one another comes in. Exhortation needs to be done in humility and in love. It should always be we rather than you. Conversely, we as the exalted um, or the members of church, in a sense, we need to be receptive and ready for action. What do I mean? When our leaders and our elders exhort us to, to do certain things, we need to follow suit. For example, they exhort us to give to the needy, for example, a special collection for those um, afflicted by natural disasters. We should heed the call of action. Or when they exhort us to tell our friends and family about an upcoming Friendship Sunday or Gospel meeting, we should heed the call of action. Let the exhortations not fall on deaf ears, but rather let us respond promptly and strongly, just like the Corinthian church, which in itself could be a source of positive provocation to others. I've come to the end of my lesson today. To summarize, provocation can both be positive or negative. But it's important to provoke each other positively in order to overcome inertia, to call to action, and to bring about an emotional response. Provocation must take place with the context of considering each other with the aim to stimulate love and good works. And lastly, we can provoke one another today through our, during our assembling together by example, by encouragement, by expectation. Let us um, <clears throat> take heed to this as we sing the invitation hymn. Thank you. Take my life and let it be Consecrated, Lord, to Thee, take my hands and let them move at the impulse of Thy love. Take my will and make it Thine, it shall be. Oh, Lord.
Thine forever, more to 